We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You're welcome to turn there now. We're going to look at verses 10 to 16 here in just a moment. If you were with us last week, we covered a big section. We covered part of this as last week's message. We looked at all the way from chapter 7, verse 6 to the end of the chapter, verse 40, because there's one theme that runs through all of those verses and is applied in different ways. It's this theme of remain, remain, trust God in the circumstance you're in, follow God in the circumstance you're in. He can use you there. Don't look at an escape from that as kind of the solution to the problems or to, to find contentment. You can serve him there. And he applied that to singles wanting to change status to get married. He applied it to married couples thinking their happiness is on the other side of leaving that marriage. To even people in, in a type of slavery saying you, you don't have to leave that. You, you can if there's an opportunity, but you can serve him, you can serve him there. And, and on and on, that, that theme is applied. So we looked at all of that together because I wanted to see that theme run. And the analogy I used at the beginning of last week's message was of a painting. If you zoom in really close, it's helpful in terms of understanding maybe the technique of the painting. You can see the, the cracking of it. You can see the globs of paint. But you have no idea what this painting is. You missed the big idea. But if we zoom out, we were looking at this section here. We zoom out even more. We see, oh, oh, it's this painting of this girl. This is by Vermeer. It's a painting called The Girl with the Pearl Earring. This week, I wanted us to see the big idea. I wanted us to see the big picture in, in all these different scenarios that come up in chapter 7. But some parts of it deserve a little bit more attention. Some, some parts deserve kind of zooming in. And, and this section we're going to look at today is one of those parts. It's a hard section. It's a section on, on divorce and, and remarriage, and we know it's, it's touchy. A, a friend jokingly mentioned last week, like, very clever to avoid teaching on a hard subject by just covering a lot all at once, right? And it can just kind of go under the radar. And that's not the intention. The intention is to see the big picture, and, and now let's, let's come back and, and, and talk about one particular aspect of this theme but I know divorce can be painful to talk about. It can be painful for a number of different reasons. It might be painful for some of you because you have a divorce in your past that you did not want and it still hurts to talk about. Maybe you have a divorce in your past that you initiated and it's still sort of tender. Maybe it's a divorce that, as you look back, it seems to fall within the biblical grounds that we're going to talk about today, but maybe it doesn't. And and so you, you feel that. Maybe you've been affected by divorce in your family. Maybe your own parents were divorced. Maybe a close family member, a friend. Maybe you're struggling in marriage right now. And you're starting to wonder, is, is divorce the solution? Do I just need to get out from underneath this? Maybe you're a kid. And you lay awake at night wondering if this arguing you hear from your parents is going to lead to divorce and you worry about that. So I know it's a loaded topic, and I just want to tell you that I kind of go into this knowing that and some of these scenarios in mind, and I'm going to do my best to be, to be sensitive to kind of wherever you might be coming from, but, but be clear on what the word says. And so if you're maybe falling in one of these categories and your reaction is to kind of pull back and maybe check out, I want to encourage you, don't, don't do that. Lean, lean in, get 
patient, kind of see what the text says, see how we unfold it. Maybe we'll answer some questions along the way. I want to go ahead and read this now. 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 10. But to the married, I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise her children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? I don't need to convince you that divorce is a, is a, is a common thing today, uh, but it was also a common thing at the time when this letter was written in the first century. In Greek and Roman cultures, it was equally common for a husband and a wife to initiate divorce. Either one could, and divorce was, was fairly common. Uh, one Roman philosopher who lived at this time, Seneca, he describes his own wife's faithfulness to stay with him, and in contrast it with other women around him who said they, they count their years by the number of husbands, is what he said. And it was just as much, if not more so, for the men. It was common to marry many, many times uh, throughout life. In first century Judaism, divorce could also be common, but it was one-sided. The Divorce had to come from the man. He, he could initiate a divorce. The wife only could if the husband agreed. And it was kind of a contentious topic of debate. So, some Jewish rabbis said there was only one condition that divorce would be allowed, and that was for adultery, for, for an affair, for infidelity. Uh, that's led by a man named Shammai. That was kind of a popular camp. Another one was led by a man named Hillel, and he said divorce could be allowed for practically any reason. Uh, if a woman let her hair down in public, if she burned the bread, if she put too much salt in dinner, or if the man simply found a woman he considered to be prettier. Those were examples of what he said could be allowed. We might kind of chuckle, but then I think, how painful would that be for a woman to live into that? Knowing that if, if her looks faded, if, if her cooking wasn't up to par, if for any reason he could just send her out. Man, what a, what a situation to live within. So it was hotly debated, and it's of course an issue today. Well, what we read here in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, he begins by pointing to some words of Jesus. He, he says, I'm giving you instructions, not I but the Lord, because Jesus talked about this specifically. So before we actually look at what is written in 1 Corinthians 7, I want to look at some words of Christ about this. Because that's what Paul's making mention of. And so I want to start not in 1 Corinthians 7, but in Matthew 19. And in Matthew 19, we see that Jesus teaches that marriage is designed by God to last a lifetime. That's the original intent. Uh, turn there now. We're going to read this section. Matthew 19, starting in verse 1, and then we'll come back. 
to 1 Corinthians. And we're doing this again because that's what Paul does. He says the Lord has taught on this and he's just reiterating it. So let's see what Jesus has said. Matthew 19, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Notice these religious leaders, these Pharisees that were embroiled in this discussion about why is divorce allowed and what scenario, and there are these two categories, two camps I mentioned, and they come testing. They're not trying to find good information. They're, they're testing. They're provoking. They're trying to stir Jesus up in this conflict. And he answered, verse 4, and said, have you not read that he, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate before we read more, I just kind of want us to sit on this for a little bit. First, they come asking about divorce. When is it allowed? Wanting to get him in this conflict. And he points to the permanence of marriage. He points to the intent of marriage. And he goes back to the very beginning, Genesis 1 and 2. And he says, have you not read? They're, they're not believing his words at this point. This is kind of the, the contentious crowd. But he points to something that they say they believe in, the Word of God. He says, we go back there. And God joined them, man and woman, in marriage as one flesh. And so what God joined together, let no man separate. Marriage is described in the Bible as a covenant promise. Not a contract that could be broken if it suited you, but a covenant before God and with your spouse. Malachi 2.14 describes it that way. It describes the man's wife as his companion, his wife by covenant. So before we get into anything else, before we get into the exceptions and the what-ifs and the painful, sometimes messy realities of marriage that you wonder, is divorce allowed here? Is it allowed here? Is it allowed here? We have to just let this sit on us that Jesus says the intention is not to get divorced. It is to remain in this permanent relationship separated only by death because that is how God intended marriage to be. He says, don't divorce. They want to know, when can we get divorced? He says, don't get divorced. And then he's going to give an exception here in a moment, but he doesn't start there. We need to enter into marriage. We need to view marriage, if you're in it, as, as permanent. Not looking for exceptions. Kevin DeYoung, he, he talks about this really well. He says, they want to talk about when a marriage can be broken. He wants to talk about why marriages shouldn't be broken. If all you hear are the reasons the marriage covenant might be broken, it's like learning to fly by practicing your crash landings or training for battle by practicing your retreats. Whatever exceptions there might be, the main thing is that marriage is supposed to be permanent. If we start out with that assumption, that belief, that conviction changes the way we approach marriage. If you're entering it, it changes the way you view the marriage you're in. If we know something is going to be lasting, it's intended to be lasting, we invest in it. I'm going to give you just a silly analogy. So, so our family, we've got 
We've got a minivan that's kind of our main car, and we bought it a little over a year ago, and our hope is that it is our last minivan. And what I mean by that is we've got four kids. We're hoping that this van lasts through all our kids, and so that our next vehicle doesn't have to be a minivan, right? But if we're expecting it to last, we're going to maintain it. We're going to put the resources, the funds into it to keep it working. And imagine if it was a car that you thought has to last your lifetime. How, how well would you take care of that car? How, 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 how much effort would you put into fixing problems that come up? But on the other hand, if you have a car that you're kind of viewing as disposable, how, how do you view that? Right? So we've got this minivan we're hoping lasts, but we also have teen drivers coming down the line, and then we maybe want some cars that are more disposable, right? And, and, and so we just, we just took a chance on buying a car through an auction that's inexpensive, and we're hoping it lasts, but, but we're sort of treating that differently than this one that we're hoping is really a long-term vehicle. Now, think about marriage. If you view your marriage as something that is somewhat disposable, that that if it gets hard, you can just hit eject, you maybe don't put the effort into maintaining it. But if you're convinced that, no, this is meant to be permanent, you will invest in it. You will try to fix things the best you can as problems come up. You will reach out for help. And so Jesus starts there. He says it's, it's permanent. Don't look for the exceptions. Look for the idea of permanence. But then they ask this question. Verse 7. Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? They bring up, it's Deuteronomy 24. For the sake of time, we won't look at it. But it's a place in the Old Testament where Moses gives certain conditions. He says if this happens, if a a man takes on another wife and he's not providing for the wife he has. And it's this kind of jumbled mess of polygamy and various things going on. And he says the wife, as he sends her away, he's to give her a certificate of divorce. And, And that was... Not condoning that action, but it's to remedy a painful situation where a woman might find herself out of the home, but with no evidence that she is able to remarry. And so he says, give her a certificate of divorce. But it wasn't to condone even the divorce then. It's, he says, no, it's, Jesus goes on to say, because of the hardness of hearts, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it has not been this way. But then he does give an exception. He says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. After after weighing in on the permanence, the significance of this covenant, he he does say that there is an exception. And this first exception, I'm going to say exception one because I think there's another one that comes up in 1 Corinthians 7, is that divorce is permitted for adultery. When one spouse is unfaithful to this marriage covenant and has an affair, commits adultery, then the other spouse is, is free to divorce. They're not required to. They could, they could work through that through confession and forgiveness and reconciliation. They don't have to divorce, but they could. They're, they're permitted to in, in that situation. and Permitted to divorce and I would say permitted to remarry as well. In that sense, you wouldn't say that every divorce is sinful. Every divorce is the product of sin and that there's something loaded and messy that's led to this, in this case, an affair by one of them. That's wrong. That's sin. But the innocent party of that, even if there's sin on their own part, 
they would not be wrong to divorce in that situation. Well, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 7 now. Because Paul starts in 1 Corinthians 7 by referring to these words of Christ. Verse 10, to read again, it says, But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. And when has the Lord spoken to that? Matthew 19. But the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. And so we're going to look at one situation here, and then we'll look at another one. The first situation he brings up is a Christian married to a Christian. It says, if a believer is married to another believer, and they want to know, what should we do? He says, Jesus has already spoken to this. You should not divorce. You should, you should remain. You should remain in that. I mentioned this last time, that this question might have arisen because some were starting to wonder, could, could we serve Christ better as singles? Should, should, should we step out of this marriage relationship? And he says, no. No, remain. That is where God has you now. That is a covenant promise. You should remain. Jesus has already spoken to that. And he points them back to that teaching. It could also be any of the other common scenarios when people start to look at the exit from marriage. Ongoing conflict. Just feeling like you don't get along. Feeling a distance between. Feeling like maybe you've fallen out of love and different things. And he says, no, you're to remain. He does bring up, verse 11, he says, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. I think what he's pointing to there is that if that decision is made, don't compound it by, by then remarrying. You need to remain single or else uh, reconcile with your, with your spouse. A lot of what-if scenarios might start to come to mind, though. And I'm going to acknowledge here and, and later that we're just not going to be able to hit probably every what if that you wonder about. But I would love to work with that, work with you on that more. If it's maybe a situation in your own life or another one you know about and you wonder, how would this apply here or here? I'd be glad to work with you on that. But a common one that might come up is somebody says, well, I was divorced in my past and then I came to Christ later. Am I free to remarry? Or do I need to remain single? Or should I try to be reconciled to my former spouse? And I think the teaching of this passage would be that you should, should seek reconciliation if possible. It might not be possible. Perhaps your spouse has already married somebody else. In that case, that door is closed, and that wouldn't be possible. Perhaps your spouse is just uninterested, and even after you make attempts that way, they just continue to refuse, and they don't want to hear any more from you. After a period of time, you may conclude that that's reconciliation is not possible. If there's been infidelity, then it wouldn't be necessary. So... Those are somewhat ifs, but I know there could be others out there. I want to move on, though, to our next situation, because some of them might fall into this. He gives a second situation, and I think also then a second exception. And the second situation he addressed is not a Christian married to a Christian, but a Christian married to a non-Christian. He begins it by saying, to the rest, I say. Meaning he's already talked to singles, to widows, to two believers that are married together, and now what's remaining is, where there's one believer married to a non-Christian. Maybe after the marriage, one of them came to Christ and the other didn't. Maybe they both said they were believers when they got married, but one walked away from the faith and showed that that wasn't a true profession. Maybe a believer married a non-Christian and later realized, I shouldn't have done that. That was, that was not what God would want me to do. 
whatever situation they find themselves there now. And they wonder, what should I do? And you can imagine, and maybe this is you or other people you know that fall into this now, the sense of, ah, I just feel hindered. Like my spouse doesn't want me to be involved in the body very much. I, I can convince them to let me come on Sunday mornings, but they don't want me to do more things than that. I'd love to have people in our home, but my spouse doesn't want us to. I, and so they always kind of feel hindered like that. They feel like there's a part of their life they can't share with their spouse. And so they think maybe the solution is just to leave this marriage. Maybe the solution is just to get out of this. And he says, no. He says, no, if, if they agree to stay married to you, you need to remain in this marriage. I mean, if it's difficult... Even if it does hinder some things, you need to remain. And he's going to give some reasons for that. He's going to give some reasons for why it would be good to remain. But first he does talk about what I think is our second exception. Verse 15, he says, Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. So this second exception would be than abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. The believer, he says, should not leave. The husband, the wife that's a believer should not leave. They should not initiate this divorce. He says, but if the unbelieving spouse just doesn't want to be in the marriage anymore, either because they don't like the faith of the believing one or because there's just conflict there and they're not willing to work through it, the believer is, but the the non-Christian is not, he says, "You you can let them go. You're not under bondage there. You're not required to stay in this and do everything you can. Um, If they are wanting to leave, then you can let them leave. The common what-if scenario comes up, though. What if they're two believers? Both profess faith in Christ. This is talking about a Christian and a non-Christian. What if both say they're Christians, but one wants to leave? Where does that put the other one? Well, I think that would fall under what we think of with church discipline. So in 1 Corinthians 5, if you weren't here, you could go back to listen to that message. Matthew 18, both talk about what we should do when somebody says they're a believer, and yet their life, they just continue to walk in disobedience and significant outward unrepentant sin. And Jesus says in Matthew 18 that we should go to that person, then we should bring others along, and then we should involve more if needed. And if they continue to resist and say, no, I'm not going to do what God's word says, then they're to be treated as an unbeliever. And so in that scenario, where somebody claims they're a believer, but they're leaving the marriage, and the other spouse is wondering, what do I do? Follow those steps of church discipline, and if the person ultimately refuses, then they're acting, and they should be treated as if they're not a believer. Not an enemy, but not a believer. And so that believing spouse, the innocent spouse, would be free in that situation, I believe. There's other scenarios you might wonder about. We got the exceptions of of adultery or abandonment. What about physical abuse? It's a common one that's in people's minds. What if if the marriage is just physically abusive? Would would divorce be allowed? I think we got to say right up front that spousal abuse is, is wicked and destructive. Rather than loving and respecting the Husband or wife is choosing to abuse the person they should care for the most. And so abuse should be handled very seriously by the local church. Somebody in that situation is encouraged to reach out for help, talk with somebody safe, 
Don't suffer in silence. It's a crime, so it's legitimate to involve law enforcement. Reach out to the police. It will likely involve at least a period of physical separation for the safety of the victims, and that's appropriate. Um, Our board, about two years ago, we put together a a document to help walk us through as a board. If somebody finds themselves in that situation, how can we best help a woman or a man? It's most often a woman, but but somebody in that situation. uh, How how can we be a help and not make things worse? What resources are available? We want to help in a situation like that. So if that's you and and you feel stuck and you want to know what to do, we want to be there to help. Now, is divorce allowed in that situation? We have to acknowledge that it's not immediately clear that that falls within this, but I think we can make some reasonable conclusions. That if somebody's in an abusive situation where they're just not physically safe, then it's legitimate to be removed from that or remove the other person. And if over time that continues to remain uh, an unsafe, literally physically unsafe environment, then the abusive spouse is functionally abandoning the other one to where it's not possible for them to be together. And, and so it could, I think, legitimately fall within this. But we have to acknowledge that it's a couple steps that get us there. And, and we want to be careful about just kind of what's a slippery slope of opening the door to, to any type of divorce. But I think it's reasonable to conclude that if physical abuse could, could warrant uh, a divorce. But going back to why Jesus, or why Paul here says that a believer should remain, he points to the way that they can have an influence on the unbelieving spouse. Look at verse 14. Prior to this, he says, no, don't don't send them away, don't divorce, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. What does that mean? It says in some way that the unbelieving spouse is sanctified. Sanctified means to be set apart. It's related to the word for holy. The Greek word is actually very similar for both sanctified and holy. How is an unbelieving spouse somehow sanctified through the believing spouse? Well, it can't mean that they're automatically saved apart from any faith on them on their own. Because he says in verse 16... How do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? He can't be saying that they are saved apart from their own faith. But I think what he's saying is that the believer has a particular ministry to this unbelieving spouse. And that the Lord may use their example, their care, their love, their steadfastness, their words, to even bring that unbelieving spouse to himself. There's no promise of that. But he says that is a divine assignment, that is a calling when you're in this. And so the believer might be thinking, if I could just get out of this marriage, I would have ministry there. And he's saying, no, you have ministry here. In this difficult circumstance, the Lord may use you there. I think it's also referring to just a blessing that may come upon this home from at least the one believing spouse. But he says not only the spouse, but the children. He says at the end of verse 14, otherwise your children are unclean, like if you leave, but now they are holy. Likewise, what is meant by this? It can't mean that the kids are saved apart from any type of faith on their own. God has no grandkids, we often say, right? There's no, there's no saving faith apart from the person's you know, faith. So just because the mom's a believer doesn't mean the kid's automatically saved. But what he's saying is, if you remain, 
You may be tempted to leave, but if you remain, you can have a significant impact in the lives of your children. I want to give you an example. It's one of my favorite examples from, from history. A woman named Monica was born to parents who, who were not Christians, but they had a woman who worked for them that was. And she shared the gospel with Monica and discipled her and instructed her so that Monica came to Christ. But Monica's dad married her off to a man who wasn't a believer. And he was a hard man, an abusive man. Um, she, she remained. And she had children. And she continued to try to love and, and care for her husband, even in a hard situation. She, she sought to disciple and instruct her kids, even though her husband wanted no part of it. Um, she prayed for her kids, and at least her son didn't want anything to do with the Lord either. In his teenage years, he, he went off to school to pursue an academic life. He was brilliant. He got involved in, by his own description, just kind of wild sin. Ended up living with a woman who is not his wife, and they had a child together. And yet, for 17 years, from his teenage years on, his mother continued to pray for him. This is Monica, continued to pray for him and plead with him. And, until finally, at the age of 31, he struck up a friendship with Monica's pastor. And he ended up sharing the gospel with him. And finally, her son relented and came to Christ. Um, and her son was Augustine, or Augustine, um, early church father from the 4th century, who's one of the most significant authors and thinkers and Christian philosophers that's influenced 1,600 years of church history. And it was... His mother's influence of remaining in his life for 17 years, even from his rebellious teen years on, of pleading with him and praying for him. For 30 years, she prayed for her husband until he finally came to Christ near the end of her life. I think that's what it's pointing to here, saying remaining, because who knows how the Lord may use you with your spouse and with your children. I want to I end with some application, though, to so some different groups I'm going to look at three different groups. Those that are single, those that are married, and those that have a divorce in their past. So for singles, marry wisely, marry well. You look at the, the weight of what Jesus says and what Paul says about marriage, and you need to enter into eyes wide open. Not thinking, I'm going to just hit eject if this doesn't work out, but, but this is permanent. And the only exceptions are not for good scenarios. So, so I want to enter it eyes wide open. I want to marry somebody who knows Christ and is committed to me because they're committed to Christ. I want to somebody, marry somebody who is who's kind and thoughtful, not just good looking. Right? I want to marry well. There, there's a book by this title, Marry Wisely, Marry Well, that helps singles think through kind of what it takes to do just this. If and when you marry, get good pre-marriage counseling. People often spend four, six, eight years preparing for a career, and, and then they spend most of their engagement like planning the event of the wedding, but not preparing for a lifetime of marriage. So get good pre-marriage counseling. Get as well-equipped as you can. What if you're already married, though? What if you're married and your marriage is hard? yet it doesn't quite fit within the exceptions we talked about. And you're wondering, what should I do? And you feel like maybe there's two options. Divorce, but that's been X'd out, and just being miserable. Those are not the only two options. That's a false dichotomy. Well, what's true is that 
your marriage can change. And so if you're in a very difficult marriage situation and you're feeling like you're losing hope, reach out for help. Seek counsel. Read a good marriage book and put it into practice. Join a small group. Work on your side, even if your spouse is not committed to working on their side. You've heard the saying, you know, if the grass looks greener on the other side of the fence, then, then water your own lawn, right? Work on your marriage. Invest in your marriage. Don't wait until a crisis to ask for help. If you see things kind of deteriorating, don't wait until it's exploding. Get, get help. If your marriage is hard, I want to just encourage you with some words that the passage goes on to say. We looked at these last week. We stopped in verse 16 today. But look at verse 17. It says, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. If you're you're married, you're married to a believer, you're married to a non-Christian, that is your your calling and assignment. That God has placed you there. And he can use you there and he can work in your life there. You look down at verse 24. It says, brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. You're not just told to remain gutted out, lonely, and isolated. He said, remain with God. God is with you in this painful, difficult circumstance to work in your life and use you there, and he can sustain you. But also know that divorce is permitted in certain circumstances. And so if your marriage falls within one of these exceptions then that is a legitimate option. It's not required, but it's a legitimate option. If you're not sure, you're thinking about your situation, you think, it's not clear that it falls within that, but things are pretty miserable and it's kind of fuzzy. Sin is messy. Sin makes a mess of things. So sometimes life is complicated. Um, Love to help you work through that. Myself, our elder board, that's why we're here, is to, to shepherd people through life circumstances. And so... All of our numbers are on the back of the bulletin every week for the whole elder board, deacons as well. And if you're in a hard situation and you're wondering, is divorce a legitimate option here? Is there help available? Reach out to myself or or any of us on our board. We want to help. But I want to talk to one more group. Those that are, have been divorced and, and maybe are remarried and they're wondering, what do I do now? I, I can see that 10 years ago, 20 years ago, three years ago, I, I divorced and I shouldn't have. But now I'm remarried. What does the Lord want from me now? Should I, should I leave this marriage and try to go back to the first one? Should I leave this marriage and be single? What, what should I do? No, I think the teaching would be confess past wrongs. Be honest about it. Don't Don't muddy it. Don't pretend it didn't happen. Don't pretend it wasn't an issue. Confess, acknowledge to the Lord, perhaps to your former spouse, if wise and appropriate, but acknowledge that and then invest in your present marriage. Make your present marriage a good one, a joyful one, one that honors the Lord, a strong marriage now. Let's pray.